0: For the last couple weeks, we've been talking about the vital importance of identifying Christ rightly, comprehending Him truly, and then following Him completely. Uh, We talked last week specifically that since Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, God's King, we must follow Him. And so Jesus last week lays down a gauntlet. This is what it means to be one of my followers. You take up your cross and you die weighty. We learned that Jesus Himself as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, receives the glory depicted in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, specifically by walking the road of the suffering servant. You get the glory down the path of suffering. So central was suffering to the life and ministry of Jesus that in the 1600s when John Bunyan wrote his Pilgrim's Progress, he makes the statement that Jesus built his summer cottage in the Valley of Humiliation. Jesus effectively hung out in that state of affairs. And so when he calls us then to take up our cross and follow him, And he gives the admonition that whoever would save their life must lose it. And all those who seek to save their life will end up losing it. He's telling us essentially that the the pattern for glory in our own lives mirrors the pattern of glory in his life. Suffering and humiliation now. Glory later. That is heavy. It's weighty. It's sobering. Ben, why are you talking about this so much? Well, I could just say because the Bible talks about it, which would be true. But specifically because that's reality. It doesn't take much living to realize that heartache, disappointment, rejection, pain, misery, it's all around us. And as we walk the path of discipleship, God has not promised us a free pass from the ailments and troubles of life. In fact, in fact, they may actually be exacerbated by our commitment to Jesus. But it can become very, very tiresome, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. In in our impious moments, when we are scared, when we are going through a protracted period of hardship, we can lose sight of the promise of the glory at all. In fact, we can become cynical. And maybe I'm the only depraved person in this room, but sometimes I can feel like I'm being strung along. Lord, you're, you're not promising to make my life better. In fact, you're telling me my life might be worse. And yet I'm supposed to sacrifice everything that's important to me possibly be ridiculed, scorned, and killed without any promise of things being better for me and hope that in the next life, I'll get the goods. Am I the only one who's that impious to question that? Now, I will say to you, we serve a gracious and kind God. If God operated like Stalin, or Hitler, he might squish us for even thinking the thought. But instead, God wants us to know, I understand, it's hard. And so we should consider this passage, God's preemptive answer to the question, because it occurs smack dab in the middle of Jesus talking about the road of the cross. Think about it. He's just talked about it in verses 34 through 37, and it's the first thing Jesus returns to when they're walking down the mountain, right? So sandwiched right in the middle is this glorious passage. And I think that what we need to see here is that even as Jesus has told us that The way of the cross is the way of discipleship. And so we need to expect in this life trouble and only in the next the glory. We need to understand that God nonetheless promises that we will indeed see glimpses of glory for our encouragement, our growth, and His glory. Jesus promises us glimpses of glory. Now, as the kingdom grows, as it spreads, as the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, those glimpses will encourage His followers as we live and dwell in the midst of the valleys of life. Now, so certain am I, that this promise is meant by Jesus, that he begins in chapter 9, verse 1, very, very adamantly. And he assures his hearers that this truth is so certain that even some of those standing there would see it. He begins by saying, Amen, I say to you. Your ESV translates it, Truly, I say to you. But it's a very distinctive Jesusism to begin his statements, Amen, I say unto you, when he's wanting us to understand the certainty of what he is saying. So people have been hung up on verse 1 for a long time, trying to decipher who's the some that are going to see what. What they have the impression of is almost like Jesus sort of, Took on this ethereal presence and his eyes clouded over, and, and he, you know, yea, I say unto you, some here will, as if he's predicting an event. Rather than predicting an event, Jesus is promising a certainty. He is promising that even though we go through life seeing hardly no signs of the progress of the kingdom, nonetheless, it is growing. And we indeed will see signs of that glorious kingdom, certainly, and most definitely, as the power of the kingdom manifests itself as it grows. Now, verse 1 is essential to my understanding of this passage, and it's essential to understanding what is accomplished by the transfiguration. So let's let's look at verse 1 for a few moments, because there is a lot of confusion and uncertainty about it. Look with me, please, back at verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, again, this passage, this verse has caused a lot of controversy. Why? Well, because of its immediate context. Let's put it back into context, and you'll see why there's controversy. The context begins basically in verse 34. In calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, see the connection there? See why there's some question and controversy? Specifically caused by the question of what is the relationship between chapter 8, verse 38 with chapter 9, verse 1. What is the connection there? Well, chapter 8, verse 38, clearly refers to the second coming of Christ. There's nobody, you can't find even a liberal scholar who denies that. Everyone understands that this is referring to the judgment. That those who are ashamed of Jesus now, when he comes back and there is the judgment and it's time to stand before him and all the books are opened, he's going to be ashamed of you. Okay? Everyone understands that. But then he seems like he's going on. In verse nine, and saying that there are some standing there who won't experience death; instead, they will see this happen. Okay, so is Jesus, in fact, predicting in nine one that the return will happen in the lifetime of those standing there? Doesn't it look that way? Well, I don't think so. In fact, I think there's a couple reasons why we can know that in. 9 verse 1, Jesus is not predicting the second return. Here are why. First, if you look at verse 1, it says there are people who won't taste death. That's a Hebraism for they won't experience death. They won't die until they see. Okay? Now notice they won't die until. What's that predicting? They're gonna die. Now, I don't know how much eschatology you have studied, but I assure you that when the end time comes and Christ returns, it says that the earth and the sea give up their dead, and bodies are reconstituted and raised, and death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. There is no more death. Second, Going forward a few chapters to Mark 13, specifically verse 32, which we'll get to sometime, Jesus specifically and explicitly denies knowing when the day or the hour of his return will be. But yet, if we locate it back to verse 1 of chapter 9 and say that Jesus is predicting it'll happen within the lifetime of those followers, well, how can he make such a statement if he admits that he doesn't know when it's going to be? See what I'm saying? Okay, so right there, two reasons why we can say Jesus is not referring to the second coming. So what then is the relationship between chapter 8, verse 38, and chapter 9, verse 1? Well, starting at verse 34, Jesus, through verse 37, is talking about the demands of discipleship. And these demands of discipleship remain the same for all time. The demands of discipleship placed upon the hearers right then in that moment when Jesus was standing on the mountaintop is the same demand that is placed upon you and me today. It's the same demand that's going to be placed upon believers 500 years from now if the Lord tarries. And so because Jesus is speaking throughout the spectrum of history of the demands of discipleship he then makes reference then to the end of time in verse 38, that when he comes, those who have been afraid of or ashamed of him in this life, he will then be ashamed of at that time. So because Jesus is making reference to the sum of history and its requirements of discipleship, the return of Christ at that point then it makes reference to that period. But then in verse One of chapter nine, Jesus understands that what he has been talking about is heavy-duty stuff. And so he makes reference to something to encourage the people there that there are some, even some standing there who will bear witness to something great because he's just spent so much time talking about dying. All right, so what is Jesus making reference to? Well, there are four Main options, And it says that he will see uh, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There are four main options, really. Some people think that it's making reference to the resurrection. Indeed, the New Testament spends a lot of time emphasizing the significance of the resurrection as a display of God's power. There are some who think it refers to Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out and, and everything is, is different after then. Some people say it refers to the events of A.D. 70, which we will see in a few chapters. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the significance it represents for that the old covenant now has become obsolete, passed away, and the old covenant people are no longer the center of God's redemptive plan. And then there are some people who say, well, it's actually making reference to the transfiguration. I mean, That's what comes next. So what does it refer to? Well, a big hang-up for a lot of people and what determines where people land has to do with what does Jesus mean when he says some standing here? Who's the some standing here? Well, the answer to that question is in verse 34. Who is Jesus talking to? It says he calls together the crowd with his disciples. So Jesus is talking to a big crowd, some of whom are his disciples. Indeed, one of those is going to die, Judas, and not even see the resurrection or Pentecost. By the time A.D. 70 rolls around, there's only a handful of apostles left. If it's the transfiguration, only three, Peter, James, and John, get to go up. See what I mean? So Jesus is talking to a big crowd. So when he says some standing here, he's not being coy or evasive. He's being honest. Some of the ones here will see it. Now what is it that they see? Is it? The resurrection? Is it the glory of the transfiguration? Is it, what what, is what is it? And the answer that I want you to see is that it's yes to all of it. What do you mean? Well, what does verse one say specifically that they will not taste death until they see? The kingdom of God. That's the noun. So they're going to behold the kingdom of God after it has come, with power. So whatever it is that they're going to see is going to give evidence to the power of the kingdom of God. Now the ESV has a very unfortunate translation. It says, after it has come. Those four words give the impression that they're going, the kingdom of God is not here now, but afterwards, so at some point later, it will come, and that's when we'll see it. Well, those four words, after it has come, are an attempt to translate one Greek word. And that one Greek word is very significant. Specifically, the tense of it is significant. The tense is in the perfect, not the future. Jesus is not making reference to an event that will happen, to a coming that will come. He's making reference to something that in the perfect tense means it has happened in the past with continuing implications and ramifications for the present. In this regards, then, the new NIV gets it closer to right when it said, and he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Okay. So, this tense makes all the difference for our understanding. Jesus is not predicting a future coming of the kingdom. That they will see, oh my goodness, the kingdom, here it is with power. What he's saying is that there will be a point at which they are able to identify and discern that indeed the kingdom has already come. Because its glory will be evident. Now reach deep. Reach deep. Think about everything you have heard Jesus talk about the kingdom. What is the kingdom like? It's like a man who goes out and he sows his field. He goes away and doesn't know where or how, but one day, there's plants. It's like someone who throws in some leaven into the dough and works it through. And eventually, As it does its thing, the bread starts to rise. It's like a little itty bitty mustard seed that you throw in the ground and one day it's so big that it's blossoming and birds of the air take their shade in it. The recurring and repeated teaching of Jesus concerning the kingdom is that it is here. Jesus says as much, if I do my works by the Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Repeatedly he makes that statement. But the kingdom remains hidden. All of his his parables teach the same thing. For right now, it's working is here, It's, it's at work, but you don't see it. You don't see it conquering nations like the armies of Rome. You don't see it toppling dictators like our armies, okay? What you see is just kind of disappointing. You're waiting. And it grows, certainly, but it's just slow going. And it calls for patience. But the inevitability of growth is there. And what Jesus is saying here, then, in 9.1 is that even though the life of discipleship is characterized by the way of the cross, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God with power, has indeed come upon you. And it may seem to be not at work, because let's be honest, when you're in the midst of suffering, you certainly don't feel like you're part of a kingdom of power. But there are some, even some standing there, who would see the signs and evidences of the power of the kingdom. So, that brings us to the great transfiguration of our Lord. Which is an awesome display of the power of the kingdom. In the transfiguration, which is for our comfort... They go up to this high mountain, and it says Jesus is transformed. The Greek word is metamorpho, where we get metamorphosis. He was transformed in front of them. Mark records that his clothing was white, whiter than any bleacher on earth could bleach. Mark, or Luke says that his face was altered. Matthew gives the greatest detail, that his face shone like the sun and his clothing was as white as light itself. So in that moment, the disciples get to see Jesus as he is. And before, all they could see was an unimpressive man who's been talking about dying. And now they see the glorious Lord of light in front of them. And Peter's remarks, we are told, are precisely because he's terrified. So on this mountain, Jesus gives them just enough glory for them to handle, and even then they can barely stomach it. It's overwhelming. Later, decades later, the Apostle John gets a higher dose of glory, and it almost kills him. It says he falls on the ground as a dead man. The glory of God is indeed a frightening prospect to sinful beings. But we need to know, brother, sister, that the glory of the kingdom has come. And indeed, we will see signs of the glory and power of the kingdom as the kingdom marches on. So, shock and awe display here. This is like Old Testament style theophany. Jesus appears And he's glorious. I mean, his face is like looking at the sun, okay? His clothes are white as light. And all of a sudden, he's talking to Moses and Elijah. How did they know? How does Peter know that it's Moses? I don't know. Maybe they introduced themselves. Uh, Maybe the Holy Spirit just spontaneously gave them the knowledge. My personal favorite is, I think they were wearing heavenly name tags. So this is an argument for why we need name tags so when a visitor comes amongst us, we can know who they are. So Moses, old man Moses, walks to the door. Hey, all right. No, it's not even germane to the point. The point is they knew that these two heroes, these two people who are so significant that they functionally represent the old covenant are talking to Jesus. And Luke records that they're talking about his upcoming death. And they're just taking it in. They're terrified. And all of a sudden, a cloud descends upon them. And a cloud is typical Old Testament imagery. A cloud is an awesome thing because it simultaneously allows God to communicate His presence while concealing His glory so they don't get too much and end up perishing as a result. So this cloud descends upon them. And this voice booms out, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is the second time that God has identified Jesus. The first time is at his baptism, right? But at the baptism, if you go back, the voice is addressing Jesus. You are my beloved son. The message then is affirming to Jesus It's for Jesus' benefit. So he knows, as the God-man, that I have the approval of my Father. Here, in chapter 9, he addresses the three standing there. This is my son. Listen to him. And then, all of a sudden, the dust settles, the cloud fades, and it's only Jesus. It reminds me of one of those great movies, you know, those great action movies where there's a big commotion going on and the cloud is there and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, there's fighting going on and you don't know, and all of a sudden the dust, and there's one. One remains. And you know that's the big dog right there. Okay? And that makes a statement, Jesus only remained. That is making a profound statement to these early Jewish believers Moses, Elijah, communicating with Jesus. We should not think communicating as peers because they are but servants of the glorious one. They were not transfigured. Jesus was transfigured. Jesus was the one who shone like the sun. They were just there signifying their approval, signifying that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of their own ministries. But then Jesus remains. There's an implication there for us. So, this sight is awesome. And it stuck with the disciples. James certainly would have written about it had the Lord allowed him to continue living, but he was the first martyr. John and Peter, they both make references to the Transfiguration in their later writings. It changed their life seeing the glory of Jesus. And it helped them in the midst of their trouble and turmoil. Now, this passage is crucially Christological. It tells us three things about Jesus He's affirmed by the Father to be His Son, whom we must obey. Now, I cannot drive this point home hard enough, but you and I already know it. There are many, many, the land is filled with people who want to deny that Jesus is the only way. There are people who think you can somehow some way, circumvent Jesus to get to the Father and have, and have right relationship and acceptability with the Father. You cannot. It is the will of the Father that you believe upon his Son. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one gets to the Father but through me. He's not just making it up, he's not stating a preference. God the Father, listen to him. Listen to him. You cannot be right with God without being right by Jesus. Okay? And when you worship Jesus, you are not worshiping just a glorified man. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. The transfiguration wasn't so much showing Jesus in all of His heavenly glory as it was an increased accommodation to our fallen need. We got to see more of what Jesus is like But even then, it was almost too much for them to handle. Jesus is glorious, worthy of all your praise, your worship, your adoration, and your heedance. You must heed his voice. Second, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Moses represents the law. I mean, you even have people talking about him in that terms. When Jesus will say, you've read in Moses... I mean, just he becomes sort of the stand in for the entire law, everything that God requires of his people. And Moses standing there affirming Jesus is Moses' way of saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything I said. And Elijah, the prophets, even though he wasn't what's known as a writing prophet, he wasn't like Isaiah or Jeremiah that wrote a book, he's called a speaking prophet. He was one of the earliest prophets in the divided kingdom. And his ministry was one that typifies the prophetic ministry of calling people to remember God's covenant faithfulness. He will indeed punish sin. He will indeed forgive those who repent. God is faithful. That is the cry of the prophets. He keeps his promises for your blessing and for your destruction. Repent while you can. And so that prophetic message finds its culmination in the work of Christ. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. You cannot rightly understand the Old Testament without finding how Jesus Christ fulfills it. Third, Jesus is indeed greater than Moses and Elijah. Not just greater than them personally, but greater than what they represent. Moses represents the law. We need the law. You can't rightly come to Christ until you've heard the thunder of Sinai. You must hear that you are guilty. You must hear that God demands perfection and you ain't perfect. You must understand that before you will ever even see the need for a physician. So we need Moses. But the law, if all you have was the law, it kills. Think about it. If all you could hear was God demands perfect and you're not perfect, have a nice day. I mean, oh my goodness. I mean, there's no hope. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Elijah. Greater than the promise of faithfulness. Jesus is faithfulness. Jesus in every way is superior, which is the point that the book of Hebrews labors so much to make. Now this vision stuck out to them, and it's unrepeatable, right? Jesus has ascended and he's glorious. And the coming displays of the power of the kingdom in the resurrection, that's a one-time event. Pentecost, that's a one-time event. The Spirit has come. eighty seventy 70 has come. But there have been other displays of the power of the kingdom. This year we celebrate the 500th year of the Reformation. Read about it. It is incredible. The persecution and the hard work and the sheer providence of God that enabled it to take off. The survival of of even this book. This book that so many of us just throw around or leave sitting on the shelf to collect dust. The survival of this book is itself a demonstration of the power of the kingdom. Our own salvation. The fact that salvation has come to the Gentiles. They have a proverbial mountaintop experience. And Peter wants to linger up there. Let's build some tents. Let's hang out up here and bask in this glory. You and I know the same thing. We go to summer camp or we go on a a retreat or or whatever. And I want to stay here. But we can't. If Jesus had stayed there, what would have ever become of the way of the cross? What would have happened to us? The mountaintops, the glimpses of glory we receive in those moments are meant not to cause us to want to stay there. They're meant to cause us to want to hunger for home so that we pursue the race set before us even though it goes through the valley of the shadow of death, with vigor, knowing that on the other side we have home and we've seen a glimpse, and it's wonderful. We're so prone to forgetting. Again, in Pilgrim's Progress, they get in the delectable lands, they climb this mountain called Mount Clear. And way up on this wonderful mountaintop, they're able to, through this telescope basically, They're able to see the celestial city far off. Oh, it's a beautiful glimpse, beautiful. But then they descend and they go and they're going through all the valleys of humiliation and despair and and they start forgetting. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe the celestial city doesn't exist. And they're called to remember. No, no, remember. Remember back atop Mount Clear? We were able to actually see it. That's what these glimpses of glory are meant for us. So that in the midst of our suffering, the midst of our sitting with our loved ones as they they wait to die, sitting with our spouse as they're sick, sitting with our children as they're throwing up, as we are fighting with our husband or wife again, as our bills just aren't being paid, as as our church people are just driving us bonkers, as, oh! And we think, oh, What kind of Savior are you? We can remember, no, we have indeed seen a glimpse of the glory to come. Persevere, persevere, push on, keep going, keep going. The glory is there. Run, run, don't grow tired. Run, remember. And scarcely does he only ever give one glimpse of glory. Consider them little fuel injections along the way. This is why we need each other. To encourage each other. As long as it is called today. Brothers and sisters, glimpses of the glory of the kingdom of God are a certainty because of the very nature of the kingdom of God. It is here in our midst with power. Will you perceive it? Or will you, like the Pharisees, Not have a sign because you won't perceive a sign. Let's pray.